little pieces of flour and stuff up here. Well, good morning again. How are you? Good. I don't know, do you ever worry? Do you ever worry because uh, you feel that you're not as Christ-like as you ought to be? Well, do you like to eat? If you like to eat, then you may be more like Jesus than you realize. You may be more Christ-like than you've given yourself credit for. Do you like to uh, celebrate and throw a party? Then if you do, you may have more in common with Jesus than you ever imagined. You see, in Luke's gospel, that's what we've been considering for the past couple of weeks, and we'll continue for the next few weeks. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is constantly eating and drinking and sharing a meal with others. In fact, he was known as a glutton and a drunkard, while other disciples were known for fasting and prayer. Uh, we're told in, in Luke that, that Jesus' disciples were known for eating and drinking. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is regularly in a banquet setting, and he's always the life of the party. This morning, we're going to look at another meal that Jesus shares, and it's a meal of hope in keeping with this first week of Advent, the theme of hope. It's a meal of hope. And this particular meal that we're going to look at, it's a little bit different from the other meals that we've considered already, the meals that Jesus has shared. It's, it's not in a home uh, as his meal with Levi or Simon was. It's not with just a handful of people. It's in a desolate place, and it's with over 5,000 people. And so the passage is Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 20. That's where we'll be looking this morning. Luke 9, 7 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack around you. It's on page 866. Luke 9, 7 through 20. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. Your word, both in the revelation of Christ and in his coming, his fleshly revelation, it is living. He is living. The word is active. The word works. And my prayer each week is that your living word would work, that Christ and the spirit of Christ would work within us and among us by the word that you've given to us. And so God, open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts that as, as we all read your word, that in itself is power. And then as I seek to faithfully preach your word, that you would do what only you can do, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 7. This is God's holy word. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here. 
in a desolate place. But he said to them, you, give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had all of them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. May God write his word upon our hearts. So this meal, uh, again, is unlike the other meals that we've considered. And, and it begins with an interesting setup. And it begins with a really interesting setup. It begins with Herod Antipas. That's Herod the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas asking, who is this man Jesus that I've heard so much about? Uh, Herod is genuinely perplexed. He knows, he knows Jesus by reputation. That Jesus is a man who seems to have the power of God. You see, in the days leading up to this day, in just the, the days right before this, Jesus had raised two people from the dead. He had healed a demon-possessed man. He had cured a woman of a disease that had afflicted her for 12 years. He'd done uh, many other miraculous deeds. He seems to have the power of God. He's, he's, he's quite godlike, And yet, Herod can't get a read on him. I don't know what to make of him. Because he also shares meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles. Surely, a man of God or a man from God wouldn't associate with such outcasts and actually befriend them. So who, who is this man? He'd, he'd heard some say that this man was John the Baptist. He'd heard some say that he was Elijah. He'd heard some say that he was Moses. That's the prophet of old they're referencing. So who is this man? That's how this meal begins. That's the setup. And then just after the meal, Jesus asked his disciples the very same question. Who do people say that I am? And that's why it's important that we, that we establish those bookends. The question that Herod is asking and the question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And his disciples give him the same answer that, the, that, that uh, Herod's followers gave him. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And some say Moses. This meal is set between those two identical question-and-answer scenarios. Why? Why is this meal set between those bookended questions? Because this meal answers the question of who Jesus is. It reveals His true identity. And so as we dive into this meal, we're going to consider three things. First, we're going to consider the three possibilities. 
The first possibility is that Jesus is actually John the Baptist. That's what people were saying. You see, John was a contemporary of Jesus. Um, They had some similarities. Both were social outcasts. Both caused a stir wherever they went. Both preached a message that was radically different from the messages of the day. Most of the people in this region had heard of John, and it seemed at least possible that Jesus was him. But of course, Herod knew otherwise. You see, Herod had just had John beheaded. In fact, if we were to go over to this same account in Mark's gospel, John's murder immediately precedes this miracle. Now, that's not the way Luke records, but it's the way Mark records it. That John's beheading at the behest of Herod immediately precedes this miracle. And so it's safe to say that Jesus is not John. Herod knows that. There's a second possibility, and it's that Jesus is Elijah. Now, you don't have to turn there, but you may make note of this. I I want you to listen to what happens in 2 Kings chapter 4. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 4. And before I read it, I I want you to know that Elisha was Elijah's successor and cloaked with his authority and with his power. And so in 2 Kings 4, a man came bringing Elisha, bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they eat, and they had some left over. That's eerily similar, isn't it? Eerily similar. So some thought, perhaps Elijah has returned from heaven. But Jesus is not Elijah. The third possibility is Moses. Moses, the prophet of old. Again, you don't have to turn there. But remember Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, the the people of Israel, just like the people gathered here, they were in a desolate place and they were hungry. This uh, This is just after they had fled from Egypt. They were in a desolate place, they were hungry, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread down from heaven for you. And the Lord fed them miraculously. And those are similar events, this feeding here and the feeding there. They're similar events, and so some thought perhaps this man is Moses reincarnate. But Jesus is not Moses. He's not John. He's not Elijah. He's not Moses. Have you ever wondered why so many people, and this happens a few times in the Gospels, why so many people thought that Jesus may have been Moses or Elijah? You ever wondered that? Well, now you know. There there are amazing similarities between them. The miracle in 2 Kings 4 and this miracle here in Luke 9 are nearly identical in their features, where God takes just a little and makes a lot, and there are leftovers. The, the, the mass feeding in Exodus 16 and this mass feasting here in Luke 9 are very closely connected. And so people are wondering, Jesus, is he Elijah? Is he Moses? Is he John? However, this, uh, those are three possibilities, but this meal also reveals differences between Jesus and those two. In, uh, in Exodus, 
the people are grumbling. They're grumbling, they're complaining. They're not just hungry, as the Snickers commercial says, they're hangry. And Moses is put out with them. He's fed up with them. To, to, to Moses, the people's hunger is a nuisance. But we see an entirely different disposition in Jesus. Jesus is not put out with the people. He's not put out by their hunger. In fact, verse 11 says that he welcomes them. He, he wants to feed them. In Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus has compassion on the crowd as he looks at them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Moses looks at the people's hunger in that desolate place, and it's an inconvenience, it's a nuisance. He, he just wants it to be uh, done away with. But Jesus doesn't look at this situation like Moses as, as merely a need for food. Jesus sees this as an opportunity to feast. So I want you to imagine how you'd have gone about feeding 5,000 people. Forget the fact that you only have a, a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. How would you have gone about that? Well, I'd have said, okay, fellas, here's what we're going to do. Peter, James, and John, each of you take a basket with just a few morsels spread out about 20 yards apart. You other guys whose names I can't remember, you follow their lead. And we've got about 12 lines... I'll instruct the people to line up in one of those 12 lines and to make their way through in an orderly fashion, and we'll have them back home in no time. That's what I'd have done. But notice what Jesus does. He has them sit down in groups of about 50. And the word sit, in its literal translation, is recline, like you would in a more formal meal. Friends, this is more than a picnic in the park. This is a banquet feast hosted by Jesus. The language is of a banquet feast. He has them sit in a banquet setting, groups of 50. It's not about just feeding them. It's about feasting with them. What about Elijah? What major difference do we see between Elijah and Jesus? You know, Elijah was sent to deliver a message of judgment. But Jesus was sent for a different purpose. John writes, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The judgment is this, that Jesus, the light, has come into the darkness, just as, as the light entered this room this morning when the candles were lit and the Freemans lit this candle. The light has come into the darkness, and people chose to love the darkness rather than the light. The difference between Elijah and Jesus is this. Elijah came with a hard message. Jesus came with a soft word. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Come along with me. So I, <laughs> I hope I can still keep my man card after telling you this. Even, even having to set it up that way is suspect. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the HV, HGTV show Fixer Upper. Full disclosure. I'm a fan of several HV, HGTV shows, actually. Um, are, are you familiar with it? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's been canceled, suspended, but they're actually getting their own network, Chip and Joanna. I shouldn't even know their names, but I'm really lost it now. Um, are, are you familiar with the premise of Fixer Upper? Uh, Chip and Joanna take a home that's dated and in need of repair, and they remodel it. 
What I find interesting is that as the show progresses and you see the finished product, as you see the finished product, it looks somewhat similar to the old. It has, has the same bones, the same basic square footage, the same floor plan with walls that have been moved and things. It, it looks similar, but it's entirely different. We're meant to look at Jesus in the setting of this meal and see a man who looks somewhat similar to Moses. He looks somewhat similar to Moses, somewhat similar to Elijah, but he's better. He's the truer and greater Moses. He's the truer and greater Elijah. And that leads us to the one reality that Peter confesses. But who do you say that I am? I know what they say about me. They say that maybe I'm Moses because, because he did things like I've done. But you know that's not true. I know that some say that I'm, I'm Elijah because through us God did this miraculous deed, but, but I'm not Elijah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Jesus uses this meal. That's why this meal is, is sandwiched between, pun intended there, between these two question and answer scenarios that are identical. Who do people say that I am? Jesus uses this to reveal his true identity, the one reality that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is the hope of nations. This meal is a meal of hope because through this meal, Jesus reveals himself as their hope. Through this meal, Jesus reveals himself as our hope. Jesus' identity as Messiah is really at the heart of this story. The, the miracle is almost secondary. The heart of this story is Jesus revealing himself as the Christ of God, the anointed one, the promised one. That's at the heart of this meal, and that's at the heart of Advent that we begin today. When John records this miracle, John records the same one, a little differently, when he records it, there's an added lesson. After it, Jesus gives a lesson. He told the crowd, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. I, I am the bread of life. In the Exodus period, God gave just enough bread for the day. Do you, do you remember this? He gave just enough bread for the day. They were only able to gather a day's worth of manna. And if they gathered more and, more and got greedy, it spoiled. Here, everyone ate and was satisfied, and there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Friends, Jesus is using this meal to convey to the people that with Moses, their, their hope is temporal. But with him, their hope is eternal. He's saying, I know there's similarities, but there's this great difference. With Moses, your hope was temporal. With me, your hope is eternal because I am the bread of life. Jesus is, he's pulling back the curtain on his person and purpose. I want you to notice what he does when the disciples give him the meager provisions. It's not much. Certainly not enough for 5,000 plus. What does he do? Verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, 
He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. Does that sound at all familiar? Does it, does it sound at all familiar? On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Taking, thanking, breaking, giving, same words, same order. Luke is making the connection. He intends for us to know our Bibles and to make the connection that Jesus is the Messiah who provides hope, who hosts an eternal banquet of His body and His blood, and this banquet on the grass is just a taste of what's to come. This banquet is a meal of hope because Christ reveals Himself as their hope, but it's just a taste of what's to come. Now, it's not in your outline. Uh, sort of a fourth point. I want to leave you with just a few takeaways. Right? A, few, a few things to, to, um, to consider. First, eating, feasting, is an expression of hope-filled dependence. Eating. Every time we eat, it is an expression of hope-filled dependence. You know, you know, God has made us so that we need to eat. He's made us dependent. Author Tish Warren says, The act of eating reorients us from an independent existence toward one that is dependent. The very act of eating reminds us that we are dependent. You know, but it can be tough. It can be tough for us to truly grasp our dependence, for most of us. Because when we're hungry, we run to the kitchen, or we run to the store, or we run to a restaurant. Very few of us have missed many meals. M most of us do not associate hunger with dependence, with need. Author Carolyn Steele says, nobody in the ancient world took food for granted. Like we tend to do. They didn't take food for granted. And so the very act of eating was a reminder of their, of their dependence. And even the provision of this meal expresses dependence on Jesus, even though that he does it. See, the disciples, they cannot comprehend any way to feed such a large crowd. And yet Jesus does. And the emphasis is on the disciples' inability, but Jesus' ability to supply what, his need, what is needed. And his, his ability to, to feed us and to provide for us draws us to him in dependence. So author Tim Chester says that we need to be careful not to think that we can solve people's true problems. Jesus is the Christ, not us. What we offer people is Jesus. He is the provider. We are the host. We are dependent. And so eating. Eating is an expression of hope-filled dependence. Here's a second takeaway. Eating is an opportunity for hope-fueled gratitude. When we eat, it is an opportunity for hope-fueled gratitude. You know, I was talking to a man once who seems, who seems to take no delight in eating. And I have no category for that. Um, this man eats to live. Right? He eats to live. 
He eats the same bland but nutritious foods almost every day. Really, I, it blew my mind. One of the points that Jesus is making throughout these feasts in Luke 5 and Luke 7, Luke 9, Luke 11, Luke 14, Luke 22, in each of the feasts, one of the points that Jesus is making is that food isn't just fuel. It's gift. It's grace. It's meant to provoke deep gratitude. Food is a good gift from God, and we should be thankful every time we eat. So why do we pray before we eat? Is that just what Christians do? Is it habit? In his book, Food and Faith, uh, Norman Wurzba says, To say grace before a meal is among the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. Think about that. To say grace, to give thanks before a meal, is among the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. We acknowledge that we do not and cannot live alone. We are beneficiaries of grace upon grace upon grace. And so we pray before we eat as an expression of hope-fueled gratitude. We pray before we eat because this little feast before us should always be a reminder of the great feast that awaits us. Hope, feel, gratitude. And then third, eating is a reminder of Jesus' never-ending grace. It's a reminder of His never-ending grace. Tim Chester writes, we need to develop a theology of leftovers. I love that. A theology of leftovers. Why? Because he says in the Old Testament there were no leftovers. Right? In the Old Testament, no leftovers. Manna was a finite resources, a resource. But in the Gospels, what do we see? Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana. What do we see with Jesus? With Jesus, the wine never runs dry and the bread never runs out. The baskets are always full. Eating, feasting, is a reminder to us, should be, of Jesus' never-ending grace. Friends, this meal points us to Jesus' never-ending grace. It's grace enough for everyone. Jesus doesn't take the meager provisions and just feed his disciples. He feeds everyone. They are fully satisfied. There's leftovers. It's grace for today and grace for tomorrow. Let's pray with gratitude. Father, we are hopeful that as Christ came into our midst a couple thousand years ago, that He today, as Jason reminded us, will come into our midst and has. And we look forward to when He will come again. And, and each meal that we eat, it shouldn't, it shouldn't just be what we do to live. When we eat, we should be grateful. When we eat, we should be hopeful. When we eat, it should point us to grace and we should enjoy, delight the gifts of our Savior. Let's not think of eating the same after this series. Let us truly enjoy the gifts of God. And I pray, Lord, that it would be a reminder as we look backwards to what Jesus has done, but also a reminder to look forward to what he will do. And every meal points us to that never-ending meal. We will feast with Christ forever. 
And we thank you that Christ is the truer and greater Moses, the truer and greater Elijah, that he did for us what they could only point to in shadow, that he is the bread of life. Lord, thank you for this Advent season, that this week our hearts would be filled with hope because Christ did come. He did come. And while we wait uh, in anticipation for Christmas morning, we know that Christ uh, already came that first Christmas morning. And so our hope is grounded in a certain reality. We are grateful for that, and we are thankful in Christ's name. Amen.